Grace and peace to you in the name of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. It was 10 years ago today, almost to the minute, that my life changed dramatically. I bet your life changed too. In retrospect, the 10 years since that second airplane slammed into the South Tower, making it crystal clear that we had been attacked, that 10 years has been much more difficult than I think maybe I even knew. We've just accepted the difficulty, the changes that have come with living in a different world, different time, with a different set of safety requirements. Perhaps we haven't reflected much on how much it has changed us. Well, this week has been melancholy for me. Ten years marks sort of a milestone, doesn't it? In some ways, it feels like a month ago that the towers fell. In other ways, it feels like I've lived an entire lifetime. As a direct result of the attack, I personally have missed first Christmases, first Thanksgivings, and first New Year's. I've seen countless friends and family shipped off to destinations they didn't particularly want to go, but went out of a sense of service. I'm sure many of you can relate. How many of you personally, or uh, uh, how many of you have personally served or have sent sons, daughters, grandchildren off to war? On a more minor scale, How many of you have had to significantly adjust travel plans for the sake of security? And how many of you have had a sense of safety violated as a result of that day? I have to admit to you that there are times I feel quite cynical about the future of our nation. We'll just keep doing what America always does, it seems like. We'll send kids off to fight wars for middle-aged men and women who will never know what it's like to hug weeping children just before hopping on an airplane to Lord knows where. So this has been a tough week for me because I don't know when it gets better. I don't know when it changes. I don't know what normal's going to be like. 15, another 10, 15, 20, 30 years from now. So perhaps this has been a rough week for you too. Ten years and we're still fighting. How much longer? How many more men and women, kids really, do we have to send off to get shot at before it's over? War is hell and not just for the dying, but for the people who come out alive. Perhaps you know families that have unraveled from the stress of it all. PTSD, alcoholism, drug use, family splits. Thankfully, we haven't lost in numbers what previous generations have lost, but there's still a toll. So where's the hope? When does it end? Will we ever see peace again? Well, imagine what it must have been like as an Israelite in today's Old Testament lesson. In front of you is the Red Sea. Right behind you 
is the Egyptian army. Where are you going to go? What are you going to do? This Moses guy has come into Egypt making all these promises about deliverance. And sure, he got you out of Egypt, but now you're looking at a wet death. Or perhaps, at best, Pharaoh will take some pity on you and drag your sorry carcass back to Egypt where he's sure to make life much more difficult than it was before so that you don't think you're ever getting out of there. What a hopeless, crummy scenario. You know, worldly wisdom tells us that now is the time for some Israelite action. If the story were set to Hollywood, and I'm not talking Ten Commandments Hollywood, I'm talking about a real movie made by Hollywood. If it were set to Hollywood, I suppose Moses at this point would make a grand speech about freedom and how being an Israelite means standing up and fighting for liberty at all costs because that's what good Israelites do. But he doesn't do that. Instead, in the verses immediately preceding, he tells the Israelites, do not be afraid. Stand firm and see the deliverance that the Lord will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to keep still. Keeping still is not something we do well. If it were me, perhaps if it were America, we'd raise up holy hands and we'd try to take care of the situation on our own. But what does God do? He calls on Moses to extend his hand over the Red Sea. Moses does it. The waters part, and the Israelites cross. 1 Corinthians 10.2 refers to this crossing as a baptism into Moses. Immediately after that verse, Paul reminds the Corinthian church that this baptism was really just a foretaste of baptism into Christ. The Israelites were living in Christ anyway. We learn in that 1 Corinthians 10, 2, 3, and 4 that the spiritual rock the Israelites were drinking from as they walked through the desert, as they crossed through the sea, that spiritual rock was Christ. This baptism stuff seems to be a thing that God takes pretty seriously. Paul tells us that just as God saves an Israelite baptism, just as he saved them as they're crossing the Red Sea, we are saved by our baptism into Christ. In both scenarios, we're hopelessly lost. The Israelites can go nowhere for salvation, save the hand of God. We can receive eternal salvation only as God graciously extends himself to us through Christ. The Israelites were dead where they stood. We are dead in our natural spiritual state in both scenarios God's work is all that can save all that we can do is receive that work with joyful hearts the Egyptians drown our sin nature referred to by reformation theologians as the old Adam which is particularly convenient for me that nature 
was drowned when we came out of the waters of our baptisms. God saves people who are dead. We find life when we accept the promise of salvation, not just in the world that is to come, but from the sin of the present life. We confess that just as God can destroy the shackles of an Egyptian army, he can kill off the vestiges of a sinful heart. We believe that just as God will lead the Israelites to a promised land, he will lead us to a sanctification of holy love so pure that we can eternally enjoy the presence of God rather than living with regret of how we wasted away our time and our present life. What does this change of heart look like? What does it mean to live as a people of perfect love, perfect, holy love, rather than as people who merely confess nice, pious words about love? What does Jesus say in today's parable? Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. It would be nice and quaint to think of this as a commentary on church relationships. But in the parable that follows this discussion, we learn that forgiveness extends far beyond the church walls. A man owes his master a debt, a very large debt. Upon begging and pleading with the master, the master forgives the debt entirely. Says, you're washed clean. You no longer owe me anything. Well, this same slave who's been begging demands that another person repay him his debt. And instead of forgiving, has the individual thrown in jail. The master hears of this, and in anger, he responds to this individual by having him thrown in jail and tortured. Forgiveness is a spirit that does not know boundaries. And it is not only a suggestion for the Christian life, it is a requirement. Because the blessing that we've been given by God through salvation in Jesus Christ is not deserved. We can't earn it. We can't deserve it. We can only receive it. And just as we've been freely given this great salvation, a payment for our own debt to God the Father, so too must we forgive the sins of others. As God forgave us through the glorious life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are also to be a people of forgiveness. Some time ago, I saw the story of a World War II veteran who'd been at Pearl Harbor on the day the Japanese attacked. He lived through the war, and his hatred for the Japanese survived with him. He went years hating the Japanese for what they had done. He, in fact, conveyed belief that this hatred ran so deep that it had affected his physical health. 
One day it finally occurred to him that it wasn't as if Japanese people were falling dead every time a twinge of hatred found itself and expressed itself. And so after many years, he decided to forgive the Japanese. As his heart softened, he eventually decided to visit Japan. He fell in love with the people. He fell in love with the natural beauty of the land. Eventually, he sent his son on a trip to Japan. The son came back with a wife. And this man who once deeply, viscerally hated the Japanese now has grandchildren with Japanese blood. And in fact, by now, he probably has great-grandchildren. I hate what happened 10 years ago today. I hate it. If anyone has reason to be angry, it's me. Certainly, I didn't sacrifice as much as many people did. I didn't lose my life. I never saw combat. I didn't experience what many have experienced to the depth that they experienced it. But I have held a weeping child in my arms just before I got on an airplane. I felt the fear of attack as we went from force protection condition alpha to delta in what seemed like the snap of a finger. And so I've lived the last 10 years and I felt them, every single one of them. And I'm here to testify to you today that I know what it is to hate people. I'm not even sure I knew just how much I hated them until this week. But they're dead. Osama bin Laden is dead. Almost everyone who masterminded those attacks are dead. Our hatred for Al-Qaeda, for bin Laden, and for the people who blindly followed them, it doesn't hurt them. It hurts us. They can't be any more dead than they already are. I don't know if we should still be over there or not. I'm glad I'm not in charge of making those policy decisions, although there are days I wish I were. What I do know is that our trajectory as a country and that my trajectory as a Christian is done no good at all by hating the people who did what they did. The Israelites wouldn't have been helping themselves if out of anger for the past 400 years they'd turned around and finished off the rest of the Egyptians. The slave in today's parable only ended up doing harm to himself by refusing to forgive a debt. The people who did what they did to us, there is a debt of honor. There is a debt of charity, kindness, whatever you want to call it, whatever good qualities you can think of. They were in debt for doing that. They were in debt in the sense that they deserved punishment. They got punishment. But after a time, 
there's no debt left to pay. There's nothing left for us to extract from them. They've already paid it. We can't forget what was done at the World Trade Center, but we can forgive them. I've decided to forgive the terrorists for how they've negatively affected my life, and they did. It's hard, but I think it's necessary. If you have any vestiges of anger or unforgiveness, I hope you'll forgive them too. People who are healthy, spiritually, emotionally, whatever ways you want to gauge it, they don't do things like that. It's people who are deeply, deeply damaged, emotionally and spiritually, who do things like that. Certainly, they need to be held in account for what they did. But they need to be pitied as well. Because people like that don't know the love of God. People like that don't know the kind of a God who will die on a cross in order to show the world how much he loves them rather than requiring a cross of them in order to prove how much they love him. You see, the people who perpetrated those acts that day, they did it because they see God all wrong. They see a God who demands rather than loves. Or at the very best, maybe he'll love if they can get him to love them. They don't know Christ. They didn't know the love of God. They're pitiable people. And they may not deserve forgiveness, but I think we should extend it to them. I think we should extend it for ourselves. And I think that we should do it because we're a people of charity anyway. It's just who we are as a Christian people. And so I call on the church today, I call on myself today to forgive the people who did what they did, not just seven times, but 77 times if necessary. Let's pray. Father, we're a people who don't deserve forgiveness. The weight of the gospel message is that we do not deserve forgiveness, but you gave it to us anyway. On this day, when we commemorate the lives lost, when we mourn the senseless taking of life, help us to extend our charity. Help us to extend our forgiveness to the people who don't deserve it, who wickedly ran those airplanes into those towers. But Lord, by withholding forgiveness, we are like the debtor who's been forgiven a debt and refuses to forgive the debts of others. And so, Lord, deliver us from hatred. Deliver us from anger. 
and help us to forgive even the terrorists. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.